hello everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of hashing for the holidays today we're going to cover financing for minors treasury management all things related to funding so for this conversation i have a few friends to talk about their experience with mining so gentlemen let's give a, a brief overview and introduction um chris let's start with you sure um Thank you for inviting me, Amanda. I feel like the most lightweight person here, uh, considering the topic. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a researcher on this topic, uh, much more so than you know an actual hands dirty type of uh, involvement like uh, some of these other guests. Um, but you know, what I have done is researched the space for quite a long time. Uh, you know, since before it was cool, and uh, I've I've. You know, had the the privilege and opportunity to to track the developments in the space quite early, uh, starting in already in 2017, uh, trying to do some some more comprehensive work on the space. So, hopefully, I can add some some perspective from that angle. You know, the OG it have we all, we need one in every episode, Chris. So, sure. Ryan, <laughs> do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Um, also, thank you for the invite. So I'm VP of product at Galaxy. I've been at Galaxy for about five or six months now. Um, what that means is I touch a little bit of a little bit of everything we do on the mining side of things in Galaxy. So um, both on the prop mining side, so self-mining or Galaxy sort of as direct exposure and mining economics, as well as our minor finance side, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about today. And prior to that, I was at Fidelity. I was director of Bitcoin mining there and more or less uh, spent three or four years on Bitcoin related topics at Fidelity uh, before that role. Very nice. Sounds like a very familiar, Brian. I, I understand that background quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, Zach. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, yeah, so I'm the founder of a firm called Down the Capital. We're headquartered in Dubai, so you can see it's a little bit darker here where I am than, than everyone else. Um, we uh, have over a billion dollars of, of assets under management and, and uh, under advisory as well. Um, we focus increasingly on the crypto industry and being an investment banker to the industry, specific to miners. Um, we're one of the only investment banks with international coverage of miners, meaning that we help miners inside North America access global pools of capital, and we help global miners access pools of capital across the world, including in, in, in America. Um, so that's something that I'm super passionate about and uh, really brought me into this conversation. That's awesome. So Chris, I want to start out with you as our OG in mining. Um, you were looking at things like hash rate distribution, right, a few years ago, like where is hash rate distributed around the world? How has your research into mining changed as the industry has changed quite a bit during the, this time frame? More information is obviously becoming available, right? Has that been easier, right. or more difficult? Yeah, yeah, no, that that would be the that would be the the main thing. And I I do realize now that I kind of forgot to say like where I work. <laughs> and uh, for those that don't know, I, I work at CoinShares. Uh, I'm the Bitcoin research lead there. I I've led the research desk there for a number of years. Um, so yeah, I, I would say the biggest um, difference between uh, researching this five, uh, four years ago and researching it now is uh, the amount of information that's available. Uh, when we first started out, we uh, literally had nothing uh, to, to go on. We had to start by trawling the internet and 
calling people and going on forums. You know, now you have uh, relatively professional uh, sources available to you. You know, you have the great work that's been done over at Cambridge. Uh, you know, you have uh, you have distributions that are published by some of the pools directly. It's a lot easier. Uh, you know. And a lot easier doesn't mean easy. We're actually about to publish a new paper, uh, our first one in a while on this, where we uh, focus a little bit more tightly on using this uh, distribution data to calculate uh, carbon emissions. Uh, and it's still not easy. Uh, you know, even with the, the new data that we have available, it still doesn't get give us the, the level of overview that we want. You know, Cambridge covers between like 32 and 37% network. Uh, we think that we've been able to pinpoint around 31% of the network through uh, publicly available information. So maybe together we have about 50% uh, if there's some overlap. That's a lot more than, than we used to, but that's still not a lot. I mean, most of this industry is still relatively dark and that makes it extremely challenging. And, you know, that kind of feeds into, like, Brian and Zach, your world, right? Like, how does the information that, like, sources like Chris creates, how does that feed into how you create products or, you know, create research to explain what miners are doing? Yeah, I mean, research from folks like Chris is, is definitely useful, I think. The other thing as well is we've just seen more companies hit public markets. There's more public disclosures, which is provides a lot of information for us to work with and actually a lot more insight into how mining companies operate, right? It's, it's very different from a world where most miners are private and therefore a lot of the financial information and how other miners are operating um, is just much more opaque. I think the other thing as well is, especially from sort of a North American perspective, just the shift from hash rate from uh, China specifically to North America, I think makes it a little bit easier for participants in North American markets to understand what's going on. I think flow of information is just more local um, and, and it's a little bit yeah, easier, easier to see what other miners are doing, I would say. Yeah, it's certainly important to track data on where miners are, where their hash rate is. I mean, again, one thing that we're seeing uh, in, in terms of hash rate distribution is similar to our, our, uh, one of the factors driving our thesis around financing the sector. We see the cost of capital coming down um, and uh, miners that have a com more competitive cost of capital uh, being able to, to outcompete others. The knock-on effect of that, though, is an increasing concentration of mining taking place on uh, effectively on the NASDAQ. Um, and uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can share a slide, but I have a, I have a slide um, that sh shows the liquidity uh, for publicly listed miners um, on the NASDAQ versus other exchanges. And it's just a very clear case that uh, listing on the NASDAQ gives you the liquidity, it gives you the pricing, uh, it gives you access to, to cheaper financing, which is a, a significant competitive edge. The concern that I have about that, though, is what it might mean for the network uh, with you know, more than uh, with a significant portion of the network uh, effectively coming under the SEC's uh, jurisdiction uh, in, the, in the not too distant future. So, I mean, this is just a, a brief uh, slide showing the 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 uh, you know more liquidity for those on Nasdaq and, and NYSE 
um, and you know how much less liquid you are going down the scale to, to other markets. So there's a clear move for miners to to move towards the Nasdaq, um, which is probably going to mean again, you know, where the hash rate is globally physically happening versus where it's kind of legally uh, exposed or, or regulated is, is going to become actually increasingly concentrated as a result of the, the financing environment. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating topic, right, of the rise of public miners, which has been a huge trend, I think, over the past year. Um, and that, that usually is because of liquidity, right? Like everyone needs access to more capital because mining is super capital intensive. So let's let's talk about you know that for a minute. Um, when we think about mining being capital intensive, there's this breakdown for miners between wanting you know to have debt versus giving up equity. So do we think that you know why do we think miners love to take on debt financing? Um, do we think at one point they're going to be leveraged too hard on the debt side that it will be difficult for them to access more funding on the other side? I think briefly, um, if you if you are a miner, you're already quite bullish on Bitcoin and taking out debt in an asset that you believe is going to depreciate against your income makes a lot of sense. Um, now that's probably their view. You know, their financiers might not always agree with that, but I think that is probably at least a big, uh, you know, high-level reason why that immediately strikes everyone as the as the more uh, beneficial thing to do. Uh, you know, you you don't want to give away uh, large parts of your future potentially deeply appreciating income. Uh, if you can get away with uh, effectively playing into the already ongoing speculative attack on the dollar. So you know, why not? Yeah, I would say also just, you know, in advising miners, we, we look at a lot of miners that are making, you know, EBITDA margins in the recent environment in excess of 70%. Um, you know, how much your equity valuation is really, really willing to, to uh, price that in with the expectation of that declining in the future and then being kind of permanently on the capital stack versus the impact that you can have on your return on equity from taking debt, even if it's a high cost of debt. Um, you know, if you're looking at, you know, uh, again, even a 50% LTV, let alone guys that, you know, we've, we've helped miners get 80, 90% LTVs. Uh, at a 90% LTV, you're getting a you know return on assets right now of um, what uh, 80% a year, 80 to 100% a year, depending on the price that you're paying for machines and your and your cost of uh, uh, electricity. Um, you're if you get a 90% LTV, you're getting a return on equity of a thousand percent less your cost of financing. Even if you're paying 20% for financing, it's 980% return on equity. That you know for a shareholder is 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 pretty tempting. Uh, obviously, the you know the current mining economics and recent mining economics have been very favorable, and you know whether they'll continue uh, at these levels very long is you know something that we, we all wonder about. But um, but I, I fully understand why miners are preferring uh, debt to, to equity, and particularly again in the private equity markets, valuations the valuation gap between private equity and public NASDAQ listed uh, or NICE listed equity 
is is huge uh, and is probably going to remain huge uh, for for some time. Yeah, I think I think those are good points, and I think there's a lot to unpack here. I think first off, miners are definitely using both debt and equities effectively, and I think you know there's clearly a place for both, and it makes a lot of sense if we just think about this even first strategically, right? Where it takes it helps you scale up a lot faster than simply reinvesting the revenue right into your, into your business. And I think if we all agree that hash rate is, is going to go up and perhaps significantly over the next year or two, you know, in terms of units of hash rate, you're getting a lot more Bitcoin perhaps today than you will ever in the future for the same uh, amount of, of hash rate. So it makes sense to use both just at, as starters. I think the other thing too that I will say is particularly for a lot of the points that, that Zach just mentioned, you know, especially for a smaller miner, Debt goes a lot further where, you know, if you're, if you only have, say, 100 ASICs plugged in, getting diluted and giving up, say, 20, 25% of your company isn't going to get you very far. And so using debt first to get to sort of this critical mass period where you then can, can take off uh, through equity markets makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the other thing that we're seeing, too, uh, is just the use of Bitcoin-backed loans as well as financing against you know, equipment and other types of infrastructure. And I think that's a really effective tool for miners to be using it. It allows them to stay long Bitcoin and in some cases uh, get cheaper access to capital than through other other structures. And we've seen, you know, a lot of the public miners take the whole strategy, right? And use that Bitcoin as leverage to be able to get access to more capital, which is great because there are places now providing Bitcoin-backed loans in a way that help miners, right? So that's a, I think that Bitcoin-backed loans for miners is one of the best things that happen from a financing perspective, because it allows them to leverage the assets that they have and also then get access to more fiat. Um Let's let's talk a little bit about loans for miners. So obviously, there's a lot of companies that have come out over the past year or two that are funding miners from an asset-backed financing perspective through basically machines. And obviously, Brian Galaxy being one of them. Why do we think that um, some of the financing arms are only financing miners as machines and not, you know, the infrastructure facilities behind it? I mean, I, I can start very quickly. I think. You know, a lot of people think mining is easier. You just buy some machines and plug it in. But if we think about financing a really vertically integrated structure, um, you know, there's energy assets, there's data center assets, there's mining equipment ass assets. And having the expertise to sort of model that out and make sure that you're managing risk appropriately across all of those different assets takes a lot of different backgrounds and, and a lot of expertise there. And so I think focusing on maybe a narrower portion of that so let's say the actual equipment that that's hashing takes maybe a little bit of a narrower range of expertise where you know we can model mining economics we, we understand sort of what the collateral is there understand what the margins are um and maybe feel a little a little bit safer doing doing just that that being said i think you know underwriting sort of other types of assets is probably something that's more familiar from traditional financial institutions and so i, I definitely would expect you know, more players to come into the space and, and probably actually see that becoming more common um, in, over the next couple of years. Yeah, and I would, I would agree with, with what you're saying uh, and, and certainly uh, see the role of financing infrastructure coming more from 
uh, traditional financial players. Um, again, a lot of the debt financing that we're seeing in the industry is coming from firms that are more crypto native and have that expertise, but that also actually have a very high cost of capital themselves. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, when looking at providing financing, need to finance the part of the business that has also the highest uh, return on capital. Uh, the return on, on capital, return on assets of the infrastructure, you know, doesn't have nearly the margin uh, of, of machines. These are also typically, again, from what we see, the, the tenor um, on those that are crypto native or crypto familiar in their financing. The mining industry, they, they want their capital returned to them in a pretty short term period. Um, long, longer tenor financing really needs to come from you know, private debt funds. And we are seeing an uptake of those uh, coming into the coming into the sector um, again, under, they they also have better comfort around that collateral um, that they're that they're financing it against. They understand you know transformers and that people are going to need transformers no matter what happens to Bitcoin, and that these are assets that have a lifespan of forty to seventy years. Um, but I think again, traditional finance. And traditional financial firms that can provide longer tenor financing have a lower cost of capital that's somewhere in the single digits is really where we need to see financing of infrastructure coming in, coming into place. And you know that's part of the work that uh, that I think that the industry needs to do is is get traditional financial uh, institutions and, and players, uh, even you know the alternative uh, types that we're seeing that are more more likely to be uh, interested and comfortable in the space to to really um, get that additional comfort that these are, these are uh, businesses that they want to support. Chris, anything you want to add there on asset-backed financing versus infrastructure? I think there's probably a, a bit of uh, necessity for some Lindy effect to, to happen here. Uh, the space just needs to grow a little older and, and show some longevity. Um, this conversation would be ridiculous four years ago. Uh, four years in, uh, you know, the amount of distance that we've traveled and the, the size and the, the competence of the players that are now you know, starting to sniff around for opportunities is incredibly different. Uh, I think time is like a huge component here. Uh, you know, this needs to be shown to be a, a stable uh, industry that isn't going to just disappear overnight. We, we need to get away from this like sense that Bitcoin's just going to implode one day and that you know the mining network's going to blow up or whatever. So the the longer we can go, I, I think the the more people will be interested. You know, the there's money to be made here, so. Yo, what is going on, plebs? We're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine, starting with the El Salvador issue. Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. Don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. 
Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout. The world of crypto can seem like the Wild West sometimes. Soaring highs, crashing lows, celebrity shills, and new coins popping up seemingly out of nowhere every day. Look, we get it because we've been there before. At Bitcoin Magazine, we aim to filter out the noise and help newcomers concentrate on the signal. That's why we focus on Bitcoin only. Learning about Bitcoin may seem intimidating at first, but we've worked hard to break things down in a simple and digestible format that anyone can understand. Bitcoin Magazine has launched a free 21-day email course that teaches you about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. You'll receive one new lesson each day that covers a brand new topic as we guide you down the Bitcoin rabbit hole with quick and easy 3-5 to minute reads. Not only do you get the free course, but everyone who completes the quiz at the end will earn some free Bitcoin. Start learning and earning Bitcoin today. Visit b.tc forward slash 21 days to enroll. And if that, that goes back to why some of the research that you do, I think is really important in some of these conversations, right? So we have, we have to explain things like here's mining economics. And then this is like hash rate growth. And you have to know or have an idea of like what you think Bitcoin price is going to be modeled out at, right? And all of those things never track with what your model actually says, right? So coming from traditional finance, it feels like it's like a really huge barrier to entry. So we all know on this call that hash rate is going to continue to grow. All of us are tracking the public mining company announcements. We know that the hash rate is just going up, right? What do we think will happen um, when margins start to compress for miners, will we see some of the entrance, the like traditional finance entrance people that are starting to look into it now withdraw because they're like, oh, things are changing, hash rate is growing. Like, how do we think that dynamic is going to play out over the next year? I feel like it's going to depend on the severity of the change. You know, say that we get another really hardcore like drawdown in price that's protracted to the point where you know, difficulty outgrows um, the price again. You know, if, if that happens, you know, I, I think a lot of people are going to get a really hard introduction to how mining economics can work. Uh, that's not how they've worked now for years. You know, it's been gold rush for, you know, since 2018 or, or 2019 almost. Well, but in parts of 2019, 2020. Uh, but, you know, that, that's not how it always is. Uh, this could be very harsh. Uh, and I hope everyone's ready for that. Uh, that's kind of partly of, of what our job is, I suppose, is to you know educate people not only on, on how it works, but also the history of how it has worked and what that could have as a consequence for these investments. Something I'm equally worried about, or maybe even more worried about, is the effect. Uh, a lot of miners, including those that are public, have made promises to the market that are being priced in and that may be challenging to deliver, if I'm putting it politely. And then their suppliers have been making promises that they may struggle to deliver. Um, what I'm concerned about is those that have overpromised um, and that will inevitably uh, you know, face, uh, face some kind of correction may cast a cloud on those that have been uh, more conservative and made more reliable projections or are using more reliable suppliers 
that will actually be able to deliver to those outcomes. So, um, so I think that's something to be to be mindful to be mindful of. Uh, going back to the the previous point that you made, uh, Amanda, though uh, the, the the importance of research is critical. I mean, we can see the effect that increasing uh, sell side coverage of miners and mining stocks is having. Um, you know, we really need to see some tier one sell side coverage of public miners um, from, from the tier one investment banks. And the reality is that the tier one investment banks only cover deals that they're doing. Um, so, uh, so that's, you know, been uh, incredible work done by some of the, the big public uh, miners and really evangelizing the, the sell side research so that uh, so the market knows better how to price uh, price miners and how to distinguish between those that uh, you know uh, that have uh, better value than others. So uh, that's that's something that is is absolutely crucial uh, for the for the entire industry, and it will flow down to the cost of finance for the industry uh, as it becomes better understood. Yeah, I, I think this is something. No, go ahead. Well, yeah, so I, I was just going to add, and this was all Chris, a point that you made, Chris, is that it does depend sort of, you know, what happens with the relationship between Bitcoin price and, and hash rate, because I think fortunately, we are still in a good position right now where, you know, hash rate can increase fairly significantly over the next year or two. And if price stays, let's just say it stays flat where it is, you know, the margins are very wide, so they'll compress, but most miners will still be in a, in a decent spot. Um, so we can sort of withstand a period where hash rate grows faster than, than price, certainly. Where miners are going to start getting in trouble, right, is if hash rate increases significantly combined with Bitcoin's price falling. And I think in that situation, we will see, you know, what miners sort of took on, you know, smart structures, you know, smart debt deals, because I think very frequently we talk about sort of marginal cost of production for a, a Bitcoin, right? And frequently what we use in that calculation is an all-in hosting cost or an all-in electricity cost. And we therefore get to a break-even price where we say, okay, this miner is still going to be profitable as long as they're mining under a certain unit that a lot of miners use. It's, let's say, dollar per terahash per second per day, right? But I think what's actually missed there a little bit is that uh, a lot of miners also need to make you know, have interest payments that they're making on top of that. And so it's not just, okay, you know, the marginal cost of production, but really almost marginal cost of production, plus the interest from, from these other deals. And there actually might be a wider spread there between a lot of miners. So when you ask sort of what will happen, and particularly in the context of like, you know, is it going to stop traditional institutions like from coming in? I don't actually necessarily think it will um, prevent traditional institutions from evaluating the space, considering how to, to get in. But increasingly, they'll probably feel that there are fewer and fewer creditworthy miners out there in sort of a bear market condition. And so we might just see fewer and fewer deals actually being struck in that type of market. But even that is probably just going to be another cycle, you know, yeah. like, like the many that we've had before. And we, we have to try and, and think past that, um, you know, if, if we want to make long-term predictions. Um, I don't, yeah, I'm, we, we could, you know, uh, people talk about this like super cycle and, you know, I, I don't know how convinced I am. Um, and, you know, the, everybody should walk into the, this knowing full well that if history is a teacher, we can have quite brutal price cycles, uh, which again could turn into 
extra brutal conditions for miners uh, because of the lag in, um, in uh, um, the upwards direction of hash rate and price. You know, it takes six months to, to deploy hash rate once price has gone up, um, but the price can fall very, very quickly uh, to the point where you're going to struggle. And particularly if you've taken on a lot of debt and you have to service that um, as compared to your uh, competitors. So one of you know one of the things that I think going forward is going to be really important for mining miners um, is treasury management strategies, right? Which we touched on a little bit here. A lot of miners are holding. Um, you know, there's one of them being derivatives, right? Or hedging solutions. So traditionally we've seen miners not be super bullish on hedging solutions because they want to, they are, they think that Bitcoin price is going to continue to increase. So why, you know, cap your upside? Why, like, do you think that that still exists? Do you think that that's still a miner's thought process or has that shifted? We're seeing more swings in hash rate and how could miners actually use derivatives to their advantage to get access to more capital. Yeah, I think there's there's multiple reasons why I think we haven't seen sort of the takeoff of derivatives necessarily in the mining space. There's certainly miners using them, but a couple of reasons. One, I think in a bull market, it just becomes a little bit less appealing and a lot of miners become very confident that the price is just going to continue to go up. So why attempt to cap their upside um, through sort of various hedging solutions? So I think that's one reason. I think a second reason is that um, a lot of miners um, still just haven't educated themselves, and it certainly isn't the case across the board, but actually on how to use various types of, of products that in the traditional financial world um, are sort of very, very well known. And so there's still actually sort of this learning curve there, just understanding, you know, what, what, what's a call, what, what's a put. Um, you know, certainly not across the board, there's sophisticated miners that know that uh, like the back of their hand but others where they're, they're still learning. And then I think the last uh, reason as well is that uh, a lot of miners sort of feel that they are almost sufficiently hedged just because of the way that mining economics work in the relationship between Bitcoin price and hash rate. So for example, if you're a miner and you know that you have a very low cost of production relative to other miners because you have uh, very cheap electricity, you feel that there's almost a natural hedge in the market where if Bitcoin's price were to decrease, you know that other miners mining at uh, more expensive levels due to higher electricity prices will turn off their machines before you. The, therefore, hash rate in that situation decreases and you remain um, profitable. And so this period where we haven't been mining sort of at the margins, has, I think has just given confidence um, to a lot of miners in this feeling that they aren't, they don't need to hedge. That being said, I absolutely believe that the use of derivatives will in increase in the future. Um, one, as uh, miners do begin mining closer to their margins and closer to their sort of break-even levels um, and start worrying more about price falls or you know, unexpected increases in, in hash rate. And then as well, just as, as miners learn more about how to use these products effectively. Yeah. Yeah, or, I mean, uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if, if you take the, the view that Bitcoin's digital gold and this is a commodity, um, you know, you look at other commodity producers and this is, these are, you know, some of the biggest users of, of, of uh, derivatives. Commodity derivatives are 
uh, some of the most traded and liquid markets in the world because commodity producers that have capex and opex costs that uh, are you know relatively fixed or which they can plan for um, but are exposed to, to price or other factors that they can't um, you know use those instruments in order to in order to protect their businesses and to reduce the volatility of their cash flows um, you know and again in our thesis that you know the miners that will succeed in this in this next cycle are those that you know not only obviously have access to cheap costs of power but have uh, access to cheap costs of capital we'll find that capital is cheaper for those that uh, are able to generate stable stable cash flows um which you know again yes historically volatility has been biased to the upside um you know playing to the advantage of miners that that avoided hedging um again i i really feel that uh that the institutionalization of the space will uh drive it towards uh, the what are sound practices for every commodity producer for every other commodity which is to utilize derivatives to sell forward your production um and uh, to at least cover your your expected capex and opex um so that you're you know not finding yourself in a in a tricky tricky position because otherwise again you're going to end up having to sell your your um you know uh, your actual production at the wrong time. Um, uh, it, it obviously creates just uh, significant threats to the business um, in terms of its uh, volatility, cash flows, and potential you know viability of a business in in a in a winter and a potentially sustained drawdown. So um, so you know uh, I, I certainly expect that uh, that this is going to increase uh, and will be part of the trend of institutionalization of the industry. Yeah, I, I agree with that, but you know, we we are missing uh, a key critical component here, right? Because uh, unlike a traditional commodities business, uh, Bitcoin miner fundamentally doesn't know uh, how many coins they're gonna they're gonna get over any unit time, and so we we need some way to hedge out difficulty as well. And uh, you know, we've we've been like cheering that on for for years now, and it's just being very slow to materialize. And I think part of that is uh, you know, but Brian said, you know, we're in a bull market, like, why would you do that right now? Um, and because nobody's doing it, we're not seeing any like liquidity developing in those markets, even though the products themselves arguably exist, and there are a bunch of them that, you know, could be used. But it won't be until a miner can sell forward their Bitcoin and hedge against uh, difficulty that you'll be able to do the sort of traditional commodities finance model, financing models where you know you're effectively offering almost like a fixed income product. Um, so we we need that to develop first, but I think that's going to be the case too. Uh, you know, we just need time because the Bitcoin price should probably stabilize a little bit too before uh, before this is hugely necessary and required by the then arrived uh, larger institutions but you know also before a bunch of the miners you know quite a few of which like the roller coaster a bit as well i get the impression um are going to want to do this but i i also agree that huge future for derivatives uh, in mining uh, and, and a little more complicated than, than normal as well and I think, you know, going back to, to what we're talking about here, I think that there may become a point where investors kind of demand it, right? Like if you, if I'm going to invest in you, I need to understand that your production is going to continue to stay steady. And that might be really the way that this, this trends. 
there's almost like two different things that we're talking about here. There's Bitcoin derivatives and then hash rate derivatives, which Chris is kind of what you're bringing up. We've seen Bitcoin derivatives be a thing, right? Like we've, we've seen people buy them, um, but hash rate derivative marketplaces are just a little bit still stale, right? We haven't seen a lot of people using those or even developing those. Um, and I, I do think that there will be um, a, a really big market for that going forward, but looking forward to like seeing who's gonna be like the winner in that space because there really isn't one right now. Yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, hash rate derivatives are also a critical component. I think the, from what we've seen from our, our clients on the mining side is that they perceive uh, those instruments to be very inefficiently priced. Um, which I don't think there's any reason that they actually should be inefficiently priced because if the manufacturers uh, of, of equipment were actually paying attention to that, uh, to that market and providing liquidity to that market, they should be arbing away uh, any price inefficiency because it would be very profitable for them. They, they have you know, a very good insight into what difficulty uh, is going to look like in the future and should be arbing away any mispricing of difficulty. So either, uh, you know, so I think that the illiquidity of that market um, is, you know, probably, uh, you know, an issue related to, to perceived inefficiency of, of pricing. And, uh, you know, I don't know for, for those who are active in that market or, or creating those markets, how much they're engaging with the manufacturers. Um, and kind of educating them on how uh, they might be able to, you know, uh, generate an alternative source of income by by bidding away uh, or arbing away any price inefficiency in that market, so that miners actually want to utilize it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if we had insight into exactly how much hash rate was being sold at like the foundry level, right? Like, I feel like all else would not be equal because <laughs> it's like the holy grail right of a of an answer to, to the mining space and, and and these markets could kind of provide that information through the pricing mm -hmm. which which is pretty interesting yeah, and if if this happened i mean i think uh you know you make such a great point there you know if this happens there uh, and and the the manufacturing space is sufficiently competitive you know this could even drive down to price basics uh, during certain uh, during certain times. I mean, there's so there. You know, we, we talk about this a lot in our like groups and stuff. But the inefficiencies are still substantial uh, in in this market. You know, not only pricing of various items, but information as well. Uh, information efficiencies are huge. Uh, you know, talking about the need for research earlier. There there still seems to be you know quite a big hype factor. Uh, even among public miners, and you know some of the more perceived boring uh, providers who are more experienced and have done things for years, uh, and you know don't make such a big hullabaloo of things, uh, you know, seem to be uh, inefficiently priced there as well. So huge opportunities, uh, huge future potential for information to flow much better through more products that have prices uh, that can tell us things such as this. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it should be really interesting to see where financing and mining intersect over the next year. Um, do we think that there will continue to be a lot of public mining companies 
listing or do have have we gone is that like a bubble at this point like what do we think the trends are going into next year for mining mining and financing i mean we're certainly seeing a lot of intention and interest to list uh from miners that have uh that are increasingly increasingly viable uh to to list um again i i think personally my my concern on when that dries up is related to my previous comment when i am concerned that a, a publicly listed miner that's overpromised uh potentially casts a cloud on the industry or there's a you know a, a correction in 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 price uh that uh you know dries up the, the the funding to the to the market but i actually i'm more worried about the former than the than the latter um personally yeah i think there's going to continue to be a lot of activity next year i think it's proven to to so far be a really effective tool for miners um i think it can be lucrative it helps really scale the business i think what i'll definitely be looking to is if you know, the increase in just number of public miners out there um, leads to any sort of compression of valuations, compression of those multiples that they're trading at right now. Um, I'm not sure I have an opinion on it, but it's probably going to be, a, you know, at least somewhat correlated, frankly, just the Bitcoin market. Um, you know, there's, there's also investors out there that are just kind of using these companies as a proxy for Bitcoin exposure. Um, and obviously, they sort of trade at least somewhat in line with the rest of the market. Um, but there's definitely still going to be a lot of activity next year, which I'm excited for, honestly. Yeah, I feel like the party goes on for at least as long as the price continues to rise. And, you know, it, history is any teacher here a little bit longer than that as well. Uh, you know, mining can, like, uh, like Brian said, mining will probably remain profitable even way into uh, either a flat or a, or a downward price environment. So probably for a while longer. <laughs> Interested to see how that plays out. Well, guys, thank you for making financing, which can usually be a pretty boring topic, pretty fascinating here for mining. Appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the pod.